Let's take our Bibles and locate Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And can we agree at the very outset what a blessed people we are? Amen. Just rehearsing those, uh, that truth in those lyrics. And regardless of all the ways we know we're blessed horizontally, man, we are blessed primarily because of God's work on, uh, for us through Christ. And we've been looking at that for a few weeks um, in our series through Ephesians 1 through 3 called Union with Christ. Travis did a great job last week just helping you see verse 3 mainly and that God the Father is the source of all of our blessings because He is the blessed one. He handled verse 3 and then, of course, the end of verse 6. Let me show you what he said in a chart form. I think it'll be good for you to kind of get a snapshot of this or see kind of how this looks because this really lays out for us the entire section, verses 3 to 14, in that we see that God is the blessed one and he blesses us. He's the source of the blessing. It comes through his son and it's by the spirit. In fact, that Trinitarian understanding that Travis talked about last week, it's all in verse 3 that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenlies. In other words, it's by the Spirit, it's through the Son, and it's from God. So just keep this chart kind of before you, even as we make our way in the next several weeks and the next year through just these first 14 verses. In fact, I think this chart could serve somewhat like a gift tag. You ever given a gift, and this is mainly true if you have kids. They receive a gift or you give a gift, and they just dive into the bag or the gift first, and you have to say, oh, don't, who's it from? And you got to look at the card, like, you know, open the card up or you see who the little label's from. We can't forget that all of these blessings we're reading about, we want to jump into them and, and open them up. Yes, but let's not forget who they're from. It's, this is the gift tag. They're from God. They're through the Son and they're by the Spirit. It's a very Trinitarian set of blessings here. And so what do you say we dive into the very first one mentioned in verse 4? Ephesians 1, 4. We're going to tackle just the first half of this verse today and see that the first blessing that, that we're afforded, that we receive, is that we're chosen in Christ. So here's the phrase. I'll have you read it with me. In fact, it'll be on the screen behind me. Let's read this aloud together, shall we? Beginning in verse 4. I'll just start with the word he. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Here's the first of the blessings. In fact, you'll notice in your Bibles, it begins with even as he chose us. In other words, it's saying here, here's the first of the blessings, just as he chose us. God is blessed. He's blessed us. And it shows up in this way, first of all, that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So let's take this apart almost word by word. We'll go clause by clause. Can we do that? And let's understand what this is teaching us about this first blessing, this being chosen in Christ. First of all, I want you to notice the action in view here. And I'd encourage you to have your journals handy. Uh, we encourage you to get those. You'll want to get a lot of notes today, make a lot of circles and arrows to understand exactly what's happening here. Notice, first of all, the action. This answers the question, what's going on? And the fact is, it's just simply this, this set of three words. He chose us. Now, from a strictly definitional standpoint, this is referring to God's setting apart his right to select or appoint a people unto himself. 
It's an action that God has taken by his own sovereign will and right out of his good pleasure. Now, the etymology of the word chosen here, and this is very important, it, it stems from the concept of a good and gracious act. And some people see God's choosing as like this stingy kind of act of favoritism. Nothing's further from the truth. The word by definition alone just simply means that God in his graciousness redeemed a people unto himself out of mercy and love. Now, that's the word from a definitional standpoint, just trying to remove any kind of emotion, just trying to see it factually. Doctrinally, this points to and speaks to what we call election. Not the kind that we've been enduring in our country, okay? But the best kind of election, that of God's choosing. So whether you use a three-word uh, phrase, he chose us, or whether you use a five-letter word, chose, it points to the doctrine of election. In fact, Jesus used both of these words together in Mark 13. And when he said this, he said that um, in the end times, that for the sake of the elect, those whom God chose, those days will be cut short. So he combines the idea of there's this chosen group and they are God's elect. And so again, it's just this fact that God has acted by his own right and power to call out a people whom he will save. Now understand that this idea of election of God's choosing a people unto himself has two kind of angles. I'm going to use some words. I want you to kind of follow me. We could use the word a plural angle and a singular angle. I'm not a huge fan of those words, but they're not bad words. I, I say them to you because the, all the pronouns here in this verse are plural. He's speaking there to the church. So we say this instead. I like this word better. There is a common aspect to God's election that the whole church, all of God's people in the church, they are elect as a singular. We may use the word collective noun. God chose the church. But there is an individual, or I would say a distinct aspect. So I prefer the words a common understanding of election. The church collectively has been chosen. And there's a distinct understanding or an individual, or you could use the word singular understanding, in which God chose people. All right? Now, some kind of split this and make an unnecessary distinction. I see them as both, both necessary in the same way that you see your body in both a collective way and an individual way. If I said to you, Dave, did God make your body? Did he create you just the way he wanted to, head to toe? And I'm speaking of your collective set of features, bones, all those things, height. You'd say, yes, God made your body. But if I said, but I guess he didn't care much about your thumb, did he? Or your nose or your ears. No, you'd say, no, God made my ears the way he made them individually. So we, we, this is true about our body. God made each individual part, but he made our body as a whole. Are you with me? And so the same thing is true in regards to election. God chose the church, yes, collectively. The plural nouns speak to that. But he chose individuals. In fact, in Acts chapter 13, we see this in which the writer says this. Luke says about God's salvation in that moment, that as many as were appointed unto eternal life believed. And so understand, this, this idea of God choosing has a common perspective as well as a distinct or particular perspective. I just want you to know both are in Christ. Now, keep in mind this, that when it comes to God's choosing or this doctrine of election, that, that we often 
use this or find this to be a divisive word. And so far, you've done really well of, of controlling your facial expressions. And I've been talking about this. You've done a good job this morning. I'm well aware I'm walking in the territory that there are multiple differences of opinions. And so I want to say to you this. While we can disagree on how we understand election, we cannot disagree on this fact. Election exists. It's in the Bible. The Bible explicitly says on more than one occasion, God chose us. So I, I want to give you room to say, well, Todd, I see it in this vein and I see it playing out in this way. I might have a different perspective of how it plays out. I think there's some room there with Christian grace. But here's where we as a body must unite in that it exists. God's sovereign right to redeem a people unto himself is doctrinally, factually, that's, that's, that's theology. And so understand something here. As a mentor said to me once, if you try to explain election, you may lose your mind. But if you try to explain it away, you may lose your soul. So, so let's just embrace its existence, its theological um, truth. And then where we may have at times different nuances about how it is expressed, how it plays out, we just want to have grace with each other. One more bit of further insight on this first note about the action that's taken that God chose us. Notice what Paul did not say here. Paul did not say God saved us. Now, maybe in your mind, you equate the two and you just say, well, it's just all one big thing. I would challenge you on that and I would encourage you to dig deeper into what is known as the order of salvation. Now, some people see it as nine steps, some see it as 10, some as six or seven. You can pick your favorite pastor and ask them and then they'll tell you. But there is a chronological order to salvation that is for our benefit because it helps us understand how God works. We talk about this on our podcast this week. So listen in on Tuesday as I talk with Parker, our church planting resident, about this whole idea of, of what's known in Latin as order salutis, the order of salvation. And here I think Paul is being very distinctly clear to say to us, there is a point in time in which God sovereignly, by his own right and power, chooses. And then there is a later point in time in which by faith and through repentance, someone believes and comes to Christ. Those are not competitive. They're not in conflict. They're all part of the order of salvation. I also talk about this in a book I wrote about 10 years ago, and this is not a plug about it. I just believe that you'd enjoy. It's called Different, Not Just Better. You can get it on Amazon. But I walk through some of the steps of salvation as they play out in real life and the stories of folks right here at our church. And uh, you can pick that up. I just want you to understand there's a lot to the reasoning that Paul, why he chose the, why he chose the word chose. And so just keep that in mind. It's a very distinct and insightful word that shows us that God took action on your behalf. The next set of words, God chose us, here's the next set of words, in him. This is the avenue of God's action. In other words, we could say it like this, the grounds upon which he chose or the merit by which he was able to choose you. The Bible says it's in him. And so this won't take long, but just understand, maybe a good way to see this is, is that God Yes, initially and 
fundamentally chose Christ. And now all those who are, uh, that he chooses are in him. In other words, on the basis of Christ, God chooses those. It's not the basis of what you've done or I've done. It's because of what Christ has done. His merit, his work stands in for us. In fact, did you know that God actually calls Jesus the chosen one? In Luke chapter 9, on the Mount of Transfiguration, God the Father says, This is my chosen one. Listen to him. And so he's what one commentator says is the chosen one par excellence. And so now all who believe are chosen in Christ as well. And by their belief prove that they were chosen. And so just realize this, is a, this answers the how question. How does God choose us when we are anything like him, when we don't bring anything to the table and we have nothing of which to, to say that we deserve it? It's because of Christ. He's the grounds and the merit of the choosing. And then notice what I think is the most intriguing phrase is the next one. God chose us in him. And then the phrase before the foundation of the world this addresses the when question. And you think about it, then, then God did his sovereign choosing on the basis of Christ's work before any of you were born. So no one here can lay claim to any kind of merit, all right? You weren't even alive. According to this, before you prayed a prayer, before you attended a church, before you had some inkling of curiosity about Christianity, before any of that, before the foundation of the world, before anybody was born, God chose a people unto himself, both commonly and distinctly. That's amazing. Now, let me see if I can talk to you about some of the concepts in here, first of all. I call this election language for this reason. I don't, I don't believe that God lives bound by time He's what we call, he's transcendent. So he is always present. In other words, God just is. This is this, we're in ground here that's hard to explain, much less fathom, okay? I mean, do you recall when he and Moses were talking and Moses said, who do I tell him sent me? And God responds with this answer. Before Moses was, and you would think God would say, I was, like indicating I'm, I'm older than Abraham, right? So to speak. But he doesn't. He says, before Abraham was, I am. That's interesting. In other words, God just says, I, al I always am in the ever present. I just always exist. And all of time is always before me. God is not bound by time. He's not, he didn't live in a past, present, future. He just is. And incredibly and almost incomprehensibly, he just sees everything in the present. So when he speaks about an action before the foundation of the world. It's probably Paul's way of describing something to us that we can never really grasp. In other words, God did something from eternity past that plays out in the present and the future, but to God, it just always is. In other words, it's, it's a way to say God owns salvation wholly and solely. In other words, you weren't around when God chose a people to himself. It's not about your merit, your earnings, your work. It's all God. And the way to describe this is by saying before the foundation of the world, this was God's plan. This same kind of language is used also by Luke to describe the death of Christ in Acts 2.23. He uses the word foreordained, that God planned, 
ordained that Christ would be killed at the hands of lawless and sinful men. It's also used by John Revelation about the lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. I think it's Revelation 13. So understand something here. This is what we call election language. And it's, it's, it's Paul's way of helping us get a handle on something. I mean, this is all God, his action on behalf of sinners. And I would encourage you, be thankful for this. In one sense, you could say that Paul is little by little kind of eliminating all human pride from the equation in these phrases. He chose you in Christ before the world began. He's like, he's like guys, just slide over. You're not the center of the stage. Don't you love that? And that's actually a gift. That we, we just need to fall on the mercy and grace of God and realize that, and this is what Spurgeon said, he's right. If God had not chosen you before the foundation of the world, he wouldn't have chosen you after it. If he looked down and said, well, let's see, Joe, how you doing? No chance. <laughs> Same with me. But because in his love and gracious favor, before any of us were ever born, God chose a people in himself out of his own sovereign will. And that's a gift. It's a beautiful act of grace and mercy. And then what's to be the result of this? Well, the last phrase says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy and blameless before him. So here it is in a very simple way. God did this, and I'll repeat it again. He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world so that he could see you as righteous. Otherwise, he never would. If you're not in Christ, he's, not, he's never seeing you as righteous. His holiness will prevent that. And so he must then transfer or impute righteousness to sinners. And how does he do that? Through Christ. And the end result of that is that he now sees you as what you know you're not. Holy and blameless. Now, I just want to invite you into this boat that I've been rowing all week. As I kept meditating on these words and pondering them, how to communicate them to you, I mean, all I kept thinking about was all the ways that I'm not holy and blameless. I suspect right now in your seat, your, your mind is suddenly just kind of flipping through the Rolodex. If you know what that is, maybe you're older than me, right? The Rolodex of all the things you've done that, man, that, that's going to sink me. The regrets, like, man, I... <laughs> I'll never be blameless because of that moment or this encounter or this incident. What I said to my spouse last night, how I disciplined my kids this week, what I thought while I was driving and no one knows to this day. Like your sins are stacking up, church. Mine did all week. Like, man, I, I've got a boatload of things that if God were to keep a record of them, who could stand? Is anybody else in that boat this morning? I'm sure you are. But then I realized, because I'm in Christ, God sees me as exactly what I'm not. I'm not holy or blameless, but because of Christ, God sees me that way. And is that not a reason to rejoice and shout, hallelujah, amen, 
So this is the result of God's sovereign pleasure to choose unto himself a people in Christ before the foundation of the world. You could stand before him righteous. Man, that's a gift, isn't it? Now, I do think this is positional language here. Remember, I think that one phrase was kind of what I call election language. This is more like positional language. In other words, it, it, it's not primarily concerned with how you're acting. Now, I'm not saying that positional language doesn't motivate us towards practical living. It should. The gift of God in salvation, his drawing of us, his wooing of us, his saving of us, all those things, man, they're motivating. We should live and chase hard after holiness without which no one can see God, Hebrews says. I agree with that. As he is holy, be holy. Practical implications are we're going to run from sin, run to Christ. But in this specific text, I don't think he's taking primary aim at how to straighten up our conduct. He, and, and I think the reason is, first of all, is the phrase before him. He said in the, in the verse, he's asking, how is one seen as holy and blameless in front of God? And it's only because of Christ. So let me give you two more reasons why I think this, that this is positional language. First of all, the words holy and blameless, they are words that are drawn from the use of, of uh, sacrifices in the Old Testament. They have some of those same um, nuances. In fact, in the Old Testament, when they'd bring an offering, the offerer, follow me here, the offerer would, would take the animal, lay it on the altar, and usually place their hand on the head of the animal and in that moment, there's this, this transfer, so to speak, of guilt from the offerer into the offering. And so the substitute, the offering, then bears the guilt. And watch this. When the blood is shed, the offering made, there's an imputed righteousness to the offerer. In other words, they're cleansed. They didn't go and do anything really different, by the way. They didn't undo their past. All they did was accept what was imputed to them through the offering. These are the same words used here. In other words, in that moment in the Old Testament, those offerers were seen as atoned for, holy, even though they didn't really do anything except sacrifice an animal and receive its imputed righteousness, so to speak, its atonement. That's what's happening here. Christ has died for us. And so now, through him, we receive the righteousness of Christ. And we're seen now as sons and daughters of God. It's a beautiful gift, a beautiful picture. Also, I want you to know this. I think it's positional language because other verses use some of the same words and they have um, language in them and phraseology that really speaks to the end of time or what we call the day of the Lord Jesus. For instance, 1 Corinthians 1.8, the same idea of blameless is in that verse, but it says we'll be blameless on the day of the Lord Jesus. So this idea that, oh, God sees us, yes, in the here and now through Christ positionally, but one day we'll be presented as blameless to God. That's the idea of the phrase before him. Also, Jude 24 and 25 promises that God's going to pull us all the way safely home and present us faultless or blameless before his throne. So I think there's some association in language here that says what Paul is getting at is this. God shows you. In Christ, before the foundation of the world, so that when he sees you now, he sees you as holy and blameless. And when he presents you to himself, you'll be holy and blameless. It's all positional. I think it's intriguing, too, that in this one phrase, Paul kind of 
gets both bookends of history, doesn't he? Before things began, God acted. And after everything culminates, God will act. He acted in election. He's going to act in presentation. It's God on both ends. So do you see what's happening? Little by little, we're seeing ourselves, you know, off stage, right? Hey, it's not about you. Oh, yes, God is for you, but it's not about you. The work of salvation, the blessings that God gives, man, they're from his blessedness. And they flow to us because of who he is through his son by his spirit. In fact, can I just let you know this? This is kind of running to the end of the whole series in, uh, sometime in January, February. But when we get to the end of verse 14, you're going to see that there's not a single imperative in these verses. At the end of verse 14, a list of, a, of incredible blessings. There's not a single imperative. In other words, there's nothing that Paul's asking you to do in this section. See, when you study your Bible and you preach, you look for imperatives. Okay, here's the truth. Now, here's what he says we should do. That's just natural preaching, natural study. In these verses, there's not a single imperative. It's all about what God has done. And Paul is saying, here's how blessed he is. And here's the first of his blessings to his people. He chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world that you should be holy and blameless before him. Enjoy. Man, what a gift. Amen. Wow. So let's read this together. Can with this final phrase? This uh, first part of verse four. Read with me. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's the first blessing from the God who is blessed. Now, my pastoral spidey sense tells me something that more than likely when we talk about election, God's choosing, that it can be a divisive issue. That even though someone may endure the message preached that day on these topics, they're like, nah, I'm not in. That cuts against the grain of, and you can put anything in the, in the blank there, but it tends to sometimes cause division. But I've been praying this this week, and I teased you with this comment a little bit earlier on some social media platforms. I think this text will actually push us towards unity around our election. Now, I know you can't imagine saying the word unity and election in the same sentence. I can't either right now. It's crazy, isn't it? But we're talking about the more and most important election. The sovereign act of God in choosing a people to himself. And here's how I think we can really find unity around that and not the typical kind of divisive moments. So I want you to do this. I want you to picture election as a rope. It's stretched out here, end to end. And I'll call this rope the human spectrum of election. You can place your hands, and people do, by the way, anywhere along this rope. Because like I said, I, I know that there exist different nuances ways to communicate about it, different perspectives. I get that. I've been in conversation with many of you. I have a certain perspective of it as well. So I put my hands on a certain place in this rope, and you do as well. Like, hey, here's what I believe about election, and we, this is what I believe. And we're going to be all over that rope. We are going to say, we know it's true. It's a biblical doctrine, so we are not running from election. We are electionists. It's in the Bible. But I might see it a little differently than you in this way or that way. I can actually live with that. 
Because no matter where you place your hands on the rope, here's what you won't do and what you can't do and what you shouldn't do. You can't put it at the beginning of the rope. Because this verse clearly says God owns that. You see, I, I'm okay if um, you differ than, different than me on maybe how to communicate election. I, I, I admit, I don't always communicate it well. I have some strong feelings about the topic. It's a treasured doctrine to me. I had a friend email me this week and say, Todd, as you talk about it this week, just please be gentle. <laughs> He's a good friend. He knows in the past I've come pretty hard on, on this and how it speaks against our pride and, and trying to root out any boasting. And, and I've leaned hard on you. Uh, and he actually treasures the doctrine with me, but he's just a good friend. And so I'm trying to hear him in my head right now. Like, you know what? There, there are maybe some different ways to communicate certain things. You know, I'm not a big fan of, of free will. I am a big fan of will. I think we all make choices. We all have wills. I don't believe anybody's will is free. Some of you do. We can differ on that, how to word it. I'm good with that, right? So we have different perspectives. But here's what we cannot disagree on. Who owns election? Where does it begin? It begins with God before the foundation of the world. That's what I'm trying to say to us. So, so don't put your hands on that end of the rope. And quite frankly, don't put your hands on the other end of the rope. Because the Bible says that he actually finishes it as well. He presents us faultless. So God starts it. God finishes it. It's kind of like what Hebrews says. He's the author and finisher of our faith. And all along this rope, I think he runs the whole process and how that interplays with our responsibility and our choices. You're right. We can discuss it over coffee and still be best of friends. But whatever you do, do not try to grab the beginning point of the rope. That's not yours to hold. It is God's and God's alone. In fact, in a moment of pastoral frankness and boldness to you, if you feel like, no, I've got to hold the front end of the rope. You're not wrestling with election. You're wrestling with pride. And you don't like the fact that Paul here in this text is trying to get you off center stage and to see yourself as a glad recipient of God's gracious choice to redeem a people to himself out of his own grace and mercy and kindness. See, I'm convinced the sooner you get up under that truth, the more motivated you'll be to living a life aimed at holiness and blamelessness. So here, here's all we're saying today in just a few short words. That if God doesn't take sovereign action first, there is no spiritual standing later. Again, we, we can debate you know, responsiveness, choices, freedom, wills, faith. We can talk about how that plays out, admittedly. But we cannot debate this point. God took sovereign action first. And so that's why there's a spiritual standing later. He chose. And so now you can be holy and blameless. And on this, man, we can unify, church. Amen. We will unify. This is the first part of Ephesians 1, 4, and it's so beautiful and motivating and compelling and humbling. Now, in hearing what we've said today, I want you to understand this too. This first 
step, this first sovereign action of God's, it was one done in love. I contended with you earlier that the idea of choosing, just the actual definition of the word means an action out of gracious favor. And so I want you to know that when God sovereignly took the first action and chose to himself a people, he wasn't being stingy or showing favoritism. He looked upon the, the, the whole humankind and saw us all as condemned already. There's nobody in some neutral category. We're all under sin. And he chose to redeem out of that pool of the condemned a people unto himself for his good pleasure. Man, that's a gracious, merciful act. And so, so that first act is one of love, which is why John would write in 1 John 4, 19, that we love, watch this next phrase, because he what? First loved us. Yes, before you were born, before you ever did anything good or bad, before you ever breathed, before all of that, God loved you. That's why personally, I see election as one of the most motivating, compelling doctrines in the Bible to actually serve and to witness. It's the one doctrine, well, I shouldn't say the one, it's a primary doctrine that speaks to God's unconditional love towards sinners. So church, Whatever response you've given to God this morning as his child, it started when he first loved you. And if you've yet to respond to Christ, but this morning you're finding your heart drawn to a God who, who loves this long and this deep, oh, I would encourage you to believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ and have life in his name. And God will place you in Christ. And that'll be a moment of proof that he chose you before the foundation of the world. Church, I pray that you and I will see the beauty of this first blessing. That God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.